Earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 8 and verse 7, Isaiah warns about the great floodwaters of the river Euphrates, the king of Assyria, with all his pomp. He will overflow as a river all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. In the second millennium BC, the, the nation of Assyria, is kind of east of, of Israel and the Mediterranean, was a great power. But by the first millennium BC, it had become weak. It had become not the power to worry about. Um, and yet just before the time of Solomon, around the same time as Solomon, Assyria began to recover and build its strength uh, so that by then the time that the nation had split in two under kings with the, the bizarre names Ashurdan and Ashunapal, suddenly Assyria had grown to become once more a strong military force. Brutal and aggressive rulers caused this nation to rise and become a fearful empire, uh, a, a name that the, all the nations of the Middle East began to know of and fear. A mighty floodwater, a mighty river, beware. And so at the time of the earlier chapters of Isaiah, um, in that time of um, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the Messiah Emmanuel passages, we then have the rise of Tiglath-Pileser III, who really began to expand Assyria over the next century. And in fact, there was a century-long empire as ruler after ruler took over this mighty, threatening empire, Assyria. They would invade, get tribute from the local nations, and so gain their resources, their people. They'd take out the king that was there and put in a puppet king who'd do what they told them to. And then they'd grab all the people and shuffle them all up. So that if you shuffle up everybody so that they no longer have a shared language, shared religion, shared nationality, shared family ties, the logic of, of Tiglath Pileser was, well, then they're easy to control because there's no threat of them rallying around their ethnic group and their national identity and their religion to say, oh, well, you know, we're going to come up from under... Suddenly they go, well, let's get together around our God. Well, that's not my God. Well, but for the name of our people, but that's not my people. And, and so this was kind of his policy, right? He had an eye on the... Um, I'll just make sure I've got the, the map right from your point of view. So this is west over here for you, isn't it? So, um, he had an eye on the west where Israel was. Uh, there was mineral resources there, timber in Lebanon, and the gateway to Egypt in the Mediterranean. And so it made sense as an empire builder for Assyria to go west and to come down into these regions where Israel and Judah were. And so this mighty army, like a floodwater, as Isaiah says, capable, vigorous, ambitious, ruthless, fearful, began to threaten God's people and God's nation. You can read the stories of this in 2 Kings 15 and 16, how at various times, as, as, as Assyria comes to threaten, the temptation was always for Israel and Judah to seek protection somehow. And so they'd, they'd look down to Egypt and say, Egypt, could you help us? But at various times, they were frustrated, disappointed, even betrayed as the various dynasties in Egypt uh, would say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll help you, uh, except not. <laughs> um, and, and at times Judah and Israel would unite again and even reach out to other kingdoms around about to hopefully somehow 
get protection, get help. Eventually, when the king of Aram threatened Israel, this is the early chapters of Isaiah, uh, they reached out to Assyria itself and said, can you help us? Can you help us against Aram? And as a result, the, the way Kings describes it, ruinous tribute was laid upon Israel. You were helped, but in the same way that if you get helped by an organised crime boss, yeah, 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 I'll help you, but now I own you. <laughs> and now you've got to pay me. Such was the... Such, or perhaps, I don't know, perhaps some farmers, if they get helped by Woolies and Coles, a similar kind of thing might happen at times. I don't know. <laughs> um, often empires stumble when one leader dies. That, you know, the people go, well, there's, there's destabilisation at the top, so now we can rebel. But across a century, time after time, Assyria's new leaders uh, took up the reins of the empire and continued the power, from Tiglath-Pileser to Shalmaneser to Sargon, and, uh, and then finally to um, Sennacherib. We find time and again Assyria continued to grow in power and grow in influence and control right down into Israel, Judah. And so again, Israel appeals to Egypt in 2 Kings 17, and Egypt is no help whatsoever, until eventually then Assyria conquers and destroys the northern kingdom entirely in 722 BC. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. And so now we come to our section in, in, in uh, chapter 30 and 31, where Judah is, is down south looking up at Israel, which has now been smashed apart, put back together and jumbled up, and Assyria breathing down their necks, feel the pressure once more. They had been overflowed and crushed and, and, um, and attacked uh, by Assyria so many times. Well, let's, let's come and read some of the story in 2 Kings 18 and you'll see the kind of time that we're dealing with. 2 Kings 18, and you can see a little bit of, of how, how they were feeling at the time that this, um, uh, this, this prophecy was written. 2 Kings 18. I'll just read the first eight, eight verses there. Uh, in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother na mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He'd removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah's a good guy. If it weren't for how unusual his name was, a lot of Christian homeschooling families would call their sons Hezekiah. He was, he was a pretty good king in many ways. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines and Gaza in the territory. He, he is one now who, are feeling this pressure, but turns away. And at this point, as he turns away from Assyria, there's great pressure to then say, where then is protection going to come from? Where then is uh, military strength going to come from? Well, maybe the south, maybe Egypt. Maybe they will come and help us now. Egypt had become stronger at this time. Maybe now they were in a place to help. However, things became more grim. 
uh, Assyria came in, came upon them, laid siege to them. Look at verse 13. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I've done wrong. Withdraw from me and I'll pay whatever you demand of me. And the king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, uh, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and the treasures of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold from which he'd covered the doors and doorposts of the temple and gave it to the king of Assyria. We find this event described in the Assyrian records. Here's how, the, how Sennacherib describes it. As for Hezekiah, the Judahite, who didn't submit to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities, as well as the small towns in their area, which were without number, by levelling with battering rams and by bringing up siege engines and by attacking and storming on foot, by mines, tunnels and breaches, I besieged and took them. 200,150 people, great and small, male and female, horses, mules, asses, camels, cattle and sheep without number, I brought away from them and counted as spoil. Hezekiah himself, like a caged bird, I shut up in Jerusalem, his royal city. I threw up earthworks against him. The one coming out of the city gate, I turned back to his misery. His cities, which I had despoiled, I cut off from his land. And to uh, Mitinti, king of Ashdod, Paddy, king of Ekron, Silibel, king of Gaza, I gave them. And thus I diminished his land. I added to the former tribute that I laid upon him, the surrender of their land and impost gifts for my majesty. As for Hezekiah, the terrifying splendour of my majesty overcame him, and the Arabs and his mercenary troops which he'd brought in to strengthen Jerusalem, his royal city, deserted him. In addition to the 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver, gems, antimony, jewels, large carnelians, ivory inlaid couches, ivory inlaid chairs, elephant hides, elephant tusks, ebony, boxwood, all kinds of valuable treasures, as well as his daughters, his harem, his male and female musicians, which he'd brought after me to Nineveh, my royal city. To pay tribute, to accept servitude, he dispatched his messengers. That's the context, right? Okay, this is unbelievable power. Cruel, ruthless, determined. Israel, uh, Judah, Jerusalem are exposed, vulnerable, threatened, frightened, conquered. And into this situation, then, Isaiah 30, Isaiah says, trust in the Lord, don't trust in Egypt. In that context, in that frightening, threatening, deadly context. So verse 1, woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. This fourth woe now. Woe to them for not trusting in my, me and my spirit, but trusting in it. Your human political plans. You, verse 2, you go down to Egypt without consulting me, the Lord. You look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. They are not trusting in God and in his spirit, his plans, his purposes, his counsel, but political alliance, human schemes and wisdom. It's a similar thing to what we saw back in chapter 28, wasn't it? I've got a covenant with death. No one can hurt me. I'm, I'm fine. But their trust is misplaced. 
There's no hope and safety in Egypt this time, just as there weren't before. He zeroes in there, verse 3, at the pointlessness, the hopelessness of this plan for security. Verse 3, Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys arrived in Haines, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. Think even just of the animals, Isaiah says. Think about the poor animals wasting their time going down to Egypt with riches and treasures to plead and kind of invite Egypt to help them. Poor animals. <laughs> Verse 6. An oracle concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures on the humps of camels to that unprofitable nation. Poor animals, all this hot desert, all this heavy load, poor donkey, poor camel, for nothing. It's like a reverse exodus. Instead of out of Egypt, I called my people. It's now back to Egypt. Uh, instead of out of Egypt, taking the treasures of Egypt, they're going back to Egypt, giving treasures to Egypt. And it's, it'll be disappointing. It'll be pointless. It'll be worthless. Verse six. Um, uh, sorry, verse seven. Egypt, who is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. Now, Rahab here. Don't think Rahab who helped the spies in the time of Joshua. No, no, no. This here, Rahab, uh, sometimes also called Leviathan in the Old Testament, is like a, uh, a mythical sea monster of chaos, a, uh, a dragon of chaos. Perhaps we could say the Kraken uh, or something like that, Jaws. This is a symbol of all that is a frightful, chaotic um, and associated for, for the Old Testament people with the sea. Hey, think about the sea, right? Out there, not in not your comfortable spirit of Tasmania, um, you know, just looking out and going, oh, isn't this lovely? But in, 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 in the, the flimsy kinds of boats that a non-seafaring people might use, just think of the sea as waves and deeps and who knows what's in there and how it's going to behave. And, and if you're out of your boat, you're exposed. The sky above... The waters for who knows how far below you, and water as far as the eye can see. The sea is a picture of uncontrollable, threatening, powerful chaos. And Rahab, Leviathan, the Kraken, Jaws, <laughs> is, is that. Is this, is, is this symbol using the, 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 the kind of the, um, the language, the mythology, the, the imaginary world of the culture. Rahab uh, then became a description of killing Rahab became a description of the Exodus. Because what did Moses do when they left Egypt? What did he do with the Red Sea? The, the chaotic, storming, Leviathan, Kraken Red Sea. Cut it in two. He slayed Rahab, you know. Um, and then kind of by word association, now Egypt, because Egypt, Exodus, Red Sea, Exodus, Egypt, Egypt gets the nickname Rahab, but now we don't have a frightful, mighty dragon. Here we have a fat, bloated, toothless, tired monster wallowing in a mud pool. 
that, that's the kind of the, the picture he's painting, right? You thought you were going to see great Rahab the ferocious and instead you've got Rahab the do-nothing. Yeah, that, that's the kind of irony that the, this is how pathetic it is. Your hope is that. <laughs> the fifth and final woe oh, uh, picks up the same kind of theme there in verse um, 31. Uh, fifth woe? Fifth and final? No, there's one more woe in 33. Sorry. Um, uh, 31 verse 1. Um, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots, in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He doesn't take back his words. He will rise up against the house of the wicked, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. He who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. It's a false hope. It's a feeble hope. It's foolish. It's dishonourable. It's faithless. It's godless hope. They're abandoning God for the sake of human strength. And what lies behind it? Well, what we've already seen. A hard heart to God's word, refusing to trust the Lord, their creator, their father, their saviour. And so the word of God to them was do and do and do and do and rule and rule and rule and rule. Yeah, that, uh, that they were trusting in their covenant of death and not the sure rock that God would lay, the sure cornerstone that God would lay in his promises and his purposes. Look at 30 verse 8. Go now and write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. These are a rebellious people, deceitful children, children, here it is, unwilling to listen to the Lord's instructions. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what's right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Now, I don't think that's them actually uh, literally uh, what they were saying necessarily. It's not that they were literally, the prophet would come and go, hear the word of the Lord, and they'd go, yeah, nah. Can you just stop seeing a vision and tell us something nice? <laughs> I don't think they were necessarily saying that. But this is, in a sense, the, the monologue of their heart, that as they didn't pay attention, as they got angry and said, you mustn't say that, as they debated and argued and said, oh, you sure? Couldn't we look at it a different way? Then underneath it all, this is what's going on. Stop bringing with us this uncomfortable message, this exposing message, this unwelcome message. We don't like it. We don't want to hear it. You can't say something nice, say nothing at all. And perhaps they were showing it by gathering around them teachers and preachers who would say just inspirational kind of fitspo things. Oh, isn't God great? Isn't it glorious to know God? Isn't it, aren't we just thankful to be blessed by God and be a special people? Yeah, that's the kind of message we want to hear. Isn't God good? Yes, he's good. Aren't we good that we have God? Yes, that, you know. Maybe that's what was going on in practice, but Isaiah saying, 
underneath that, this is what you're doing. You, it's as if you're saying, shut up, stop talking. If you're going to talk to us, don't bring it with us, this holy one of Israel. Tell us what we want to hear. Verse 15, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you'd have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses. (laughs) Well, therefore you will flee. Uh, You say, uh, we'll ride on swift horses. Well, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five. You'll all flee away till you're left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Beware. Beware. If only you would listen to me instead, he says. For verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait in him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you'll weep no more. How gracious he'll be when you cry for help to him. Not Egypt, him. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. If only you would cry to me, not to Egypt, not to your idols, not to your false religion. But to me, I will come I will save, I will rescue. Verse 23, he'll send you rain for the seed, for sowing the ground and food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. Your cattle will graze, your donkeys will die, and so on and so on. And he will bring judgment on your enemy. Verse 31, the voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. 30, 31, with a scepter he will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with his punishing rod will be to the music of tambourines and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. He will bring judgment. He will bring power. He will bring rescue. 31 verse 8, Assyria will fall by a sword that is not of man. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They'll flee before the sword and their young men will be put to forced labour. Their stronghold will fall before because of terror. At the sight of battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord, whose fire in Jerusalem, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And you know what the wonderful news is? In this case, they listened to the Lord. They did trust in the Lord. They did say, no, we will trust in him. And as Assyria came back yet again and came right to their gates yet again, breathing down their necks, sieging their city, shouting out to the people, listen, we've conquered every other nation, every other god. We are the only nation, the only gods, the only power left. Surrender and we will bless you. (laughs) At that point, they trusted in the Lord and the Lord delivered them. It's such an amazing story that, um, that Isaiah um, tells it at length in, in chapter 36 through 39. He tells the story of the rescue of Jerusalem from Sennacherib. That God intervenes and rescues. You see there in uh, Isaiah 37, we'll just read that small little bit there. Uh, The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. 
And we actually read in his records of how he describes a plague coming through their army, a great plague wiping out their soldiers. And one day, verse 38, while he was worshipping in the temple of his god in his rock, his sons Adram, Melech and Shereza cut him down with a sword and they escaped to the land of Arat and Ereshadon, his son, succeeded him as king. They trusted in the Lord, not Egypt. They listened to the prophet and God rescued them. Astonishingly, incredibly, who other nation, what other people, what other God could withstand the power of Assyria? Well, Jerusalem. Hezekiah, trusting in the Lord, doing nothing, but trusting in the Lord because doing nothing and trusting in the Lord is the one thing that he could do that would save him. Doing everything, sending envoys and riches and donkeys and camels and uh, uh, ambassadors and negotiators and diplomats down to Egypt. Well, that's a doing nothing that leads to ruin. But they trusted the Lord and God rescued them. I want to pause and take some time, though, to reflect on how this all, how we learn from all this, how we learn from this. Firstly, when do we harden our hearts to God's word and his promises, God's values and his priorities? When do we drift the way Jerusalem was tempted to drift into functional unbelief? So they didn't say, I'm an atheist. That wasn't what was going on. They didn't even say, I'm not a worshipper of the Lord. That wasn't what was going on. But with their, 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 what they were trusting in, how they were living, what they were um, planning, they were doing all of that without reference to God. In fact, shutting out God's prophets and teachers. Day to day, practically, they may as well have been atheists or pagans. Yeah? The Lord can be the Lord in theory, in ritual, on Sunday, even in our morals a bit. But in real life, in public life, in political life, in everyday life, in business life, in social life, well, God's not God there. I mean, I know technically that maybe the preacher would tell me this is the way to live a godly life, but that's never going to work in my friendship group. I'd be a loser if I did that. I know technically uh, the Christian um, moralist might say that this is the godly way to perform business, but I'd be ruined if I conducted myself in business that way. See what happens? That in practice, my wisdom, my fears, my need for security chucks out God's word, God's purposes, God's priorities. And what begins as hardening my heart to this or that word of God ends up becoming hardening my heart to God entirely. Are you hard in your heart? Are you hardening in your heart to God's word? Cold to Bible study? When was the last time you read God's word? Drifting off in your thoughts, in the sermon? Arms crossed as those teach and encourage you with the word. Made up my mind already. Don't confuse me with the facts. You know, <laughs> I already know what I need to do. Don't, don't 
meddle with, with, with God's word. I don't, I don't want to hear that. It just makes things harder. It's a dangerous territory, isn't it? Because what begins as just shutting out this or that aspect quickly becomes shutting God out entirely. God becomes an offence to me. I mean, people do this when they shut out the gospel of Jesus, don't they? Ugly business. All this stuff about blood and sacrifice and atonement. Oh, it's an ugly mess. Surely the main thing is as long as we mean well, you know. As long as we do our best in a spiritual, that's the main thing, right? The kind of God I believe in is a God who, as long as we mean well, will accept everybody. Don't stop confusing me with this bloody God and his bloody cross, that miserable business. And so the cross becomes an offence to us. And we stumble over the stone that God laid in Jesus and his death for our sins. We push it away. Oh, people won't believe if we go on about that. Let's talk about God's blessing. Let's talk about life to the full. Let's talk about human flourishing. Let's talk about uh, family values. Let's talk about God's will for your marriage or God's will for your business. Let's talk about something that's uplifting. And so we shut out the fact that God says the thing he's most interested in, what brings him the most glory is his plan to save the world through the death of his son, for the forgiveness of sins, for life eternal. We shut it out. And the one thing that is most useful to the non-Christian world, we pack away. We put in the back storage room. Beware of hardening your heart to God's word. Second point of application. Here... Isaiah's message is, don't trust in Egypt, do nothing, stay put, God will rescue you. What does that mean for us? You know, he says in uh, uh, 30 verse 15, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. Do nothing, don't go to Egypt, stay put. Some people say, oh, well, this is a lesson for us Christians today. Let go and let God Sit still, do nothing, and wait on the Lord. Um, that, that's the precondition of blessing, perhaps. Just have a, a time of stillness, a retreat of stillness, and then the blessing of God will come, like Isaiah says. In rest and repentance is, is my blessing. So uh, some say we must avoid any strategy, any planning, uh, any vision setting or thinking, and simply fast and pray. But the point here is not that there is always a problem with planning or strategy or doing good or preaching or... or no, no, no. The point here is worldly planning, worldly wisdom, uh, plans, 30 verse 1, that are not God's plans. Uh, going down to Egypt, 30 verse 2, not consulting the Lord. Yeah? So the problem is not uh, plans or strategy or doing things in and of itself. Yeah. The problem is not with activity. In fact, Egypt was mocked for doing nothing, wasn't it, in verse 7? No, the problem is with worldliness, with trust in human schemes alone. 
human striving alone, human effort alone, and ignoring God's means. Now look, God's means may be do nothing. Yeah? Simply pray and wait, perhaps. At times that was the case. In this case it was. In the time of Abraham waiting for an heir, that was the same issue then, wasn't it? He was trying to scheme and plan for an heir. God said, oh, you have many children. I don't have any children. Uh, My wife is never going to give me a child. Let's see if I can find another way to help God's promises. That's similar to this, isn't it? Where what Abraham should have done was nothing (laughs) but trust the Lord. But that's not always the case in every season of God's plans and purposes. There are other times where... uh, God's word is not do nothing, but come out of her, my people, leave Babylon, flee. You know, there are other times when God's word is arise now in the middle of the night and leave Egypt. Or go into all the world preaching the gospel, make, make disciples of all nations. Yeah, so, so we need to ask, what is God's word now that we must trust? Is it sit still do nothing? Like in Hezekiah's day? Is it do something? But what God says, that's what we've got to ask. So then, what is God's word for us Christians today? What is the thing we must trust in? Well, in the first place, it's, it is. Do nothing to save myself, but trust in Jesus who saves. Isn't it? That's the first thing. What's the, what's the trouble I have in the first place, according to Jesus and his gospel? You know, we're in Isaiah's day, promising ahead to the days when Jesus comes, in our day, over in Acts and Romans and Colossians, what's the big threat? Sin. The devil. Hell. Judgment of God. That's the big enemy, isn't it? The big threat is not the judgment of God through Assyria, or, or threat to a worldly kingdom through an empire, the great threat of the New Testament is beware the day is coming. The judgment of God is coming when God will give to each person according to what he has done. More fearful than any Sennacherib or Sargon or Tiglath-Pileser. More fearful than any physical, temporal, historical trouble is the great day. And Egypt, of course, is no help then. (laughs) Um, But nor is human religion or good intentions or moral performance or superstitions or spiritual experiences. There's only one hope that we have, only one sure rock and cornerstone, only one protection against that flood. It's the Lord Jesus, isn't it? So don't trust in works, God says through his apostle, doesn't he? Don't trust in human works, works of the law. Trust in the blood of Jesus, delivered over the death for our sins, raised to life for our justification. Be still from works, justifying yourself, and trust in the Lord Jesus. That's, that's the first application. But last of all, Now as Christians justified, uh, have you trusted in Jesus? Now those who have trusted in him alone, 
What now is God's word for Christian ministry, Christian church? Is it still do nothing? Is it still just rest in God, pray and wait, and he will do the work? Just gather and sing and pray, sit and pray and wait, and then God will do the work? Is that, is that how God speaks to us now as his people who now share in his saving work? Wait for guidance, who knows what will come. Be passive and prayerful and who knows what God will do. Well, no, because again, the issue is not planning or activity or thinking in and of itself. The issue is worldly planning. Uh, vain uh, schemes that don't listen to God. Worldly power, worldliness, worldly activity, ignoring God's promises, ignoring God's power, ignoring God's method. So what is God's method? What is God's promise? What is God's counsel? It is to preach his word, the cross. That's his message. It's not sit and wait and pray. It is go into all the world. It is not who knows what God might do for the Northwest. It is you do know what God has for the Northwest, the message of the cross. That's his method. That's his plan. That's his counsel. And so for me to actually go, I won't step out in evangelism and discipleship and ministry and uh, instead I'll sit and pray and wait. Funnily, that's actually ignoring God's counsel for human wisdom. That's my human wisdom saying, I think if I were God, I'd like me to just wait. When God said, no, don't wait, go. Yeah? He's given us the word and prayer to be active in sharing with his work of the gospel age to preach the message of Jesus, which rescues us from that greater threat than Assyria. So don't trust in human wisdom, human methods, human gospels, human... Uh, power but the word of the cross let's come to 1 corinthians 1 as we finish right 1 corinthians 1 for there we have exactly that theme we have god's method it's the word of the cross so use that method 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I'll frustrate. That's from Isaiah 29. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God has given us that message, that power, that wisdom. He's entrusted it to us, to us individually, to us as families, to us as churches. And so trust his counsel. The gospel is the powerful message. Trust his agenda, which is now is the time where we pray and plan and look 
to see how we can bring that gospel to our neighbourhoods, to our state, to our country, to our world. And wisely, prayerfully, humbly plan to stick with God's method, God's purpose, God's agenda. It's do something now. It's do something. Trust in his method that his word of the cross is the power to save. How are we going with that? How are we going that in our lives, in our ministries? Let's pray that God can strengthen our confidence in him to continue in this way. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you remove from us trust in our own godliness or wisdom and to trust alone in Jesus for our sure hope now and for eternity. We praise you that Jesus, his death and resurrection is an absolute sure hope for us for now and eternity. And we pray you forgive us where we in our lives and ministries have become distracted from preaching the word of the gospel. And so we pray that by your spirit you will strengthen our confidence in you and your wisdom and so persist with your purpose to preach your word of the gospel wherever you've put us. We ask for your blessing in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.